Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hello. Good morning. We have visitors. Some folks. Hey, folks. My family. Yeah. I've worked at CCF for 13 years, and, ooh, the tree is going to be, hey, back there. Uh, I think this might be the first time my family has ever heard me preach here in person, live and in person. Is that accurate? Two of my brothers are here. I'm the baby of the family, uh, and their children, my nephew Nate, some of you knew Nate from the spring break trip. Uh, He's here, so say hi if you remember him from going to Oklahoma together. Um, but yes, you might not think that they're my family by looking at my two brothers. We don't look a lot alike. My one brother who is about my same stature doesn't look a lot like me in the face. And my other brother who maybe looks a little like me in the face is not at all my stature. So (coughs) anyway, uh, welcome Den family. Really glad that y'all are here. Hello. We have been doing a series on the crucifixion. As if you've been here on a Sunday, you well know by now. Um, We're going to continue that uh, this morning with a story post-crucifixion. So there's a a story in the Gospel of Luke. Oh, if you're note takers, here are your titles for this morning. Uh, This is right, left hand, take two. Or limited, unlimited power. Or we had hoped, hadn't we? There's a story in the Gospel of Luke following the crucifixion uh, where two disciples are getting out of town. Perhaps coincidentally or not coincidentally on the very day that Jesus was resurrected. And they're headed to, does anybody know the story I'm talking about? Do you know where they're going? Emmaus. They're going to Emmaus. Uh, Their backs are to Jerusalem. (coughs) They're headed about seven miles off, as the story tells it. And we don't know why they're leaving, but we could take a guess. Something about the crucifixion (coughs) uh, was maybe more than they could bear. And my guess is that that's something... Um, wasn't so much just the horrifically violent act that they had seen uh, as it was that what that crucifixion meant for whatever they hoped that Jesus was going to be or whatever they hoped he was going to do was now definitely not going to be getting done. Uh, And so what's the point of sticking around? Their hopes had been dashed. We're out. And so these two disciples, one of whom uh, we've, we've never heard of, his name is Cleopas, and the other whose name we're never told, uh, they're talking as they're just kind of kicking the dust down the road. And we don't know exactly what they're saying, and neither does uh, this curious stranger who has just now come up alongside them uh, to travel with them for just and keep company for just a little while. So he asks, he says, what are you talking about as you're walking? And something about that question also seems to be somehow more than they can bear, because suddenly they just stop in their tracks. They stop walking. It says they stood still, looking sad, the story says. And of course they do, because they've just been asked to open their deepest wound uh, a little wider to someone they don't even recognize. And the humor and the, the irony of the story is that the person they don't recognize is both the source of their wound as well as uh, the source of their healing. If only they could just tell because this person is Jesus, they just they don't know it. He was, they were kept from recognizing him, it says. And they think he's a tourist. He's just a visitor to Jerusalem. And so in their grief and maybe just they're annoyed, 
they scold him a little bit for being kind of dim. And they're like, you must be the only guy around here who doesn't know, uh, doesn't have a clue about the things that have been going on. And Jesus, I think, like I imagine him with a little twinkle in his eye, he says, what things? Uh, And this is what they say. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, and now that's not happening. And, and when they say here that we had hoped that he was the one to, uh, I, I think they speak for all of us. They speak something that all of us have felt at some time or another. <coughs> we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, or we had hoped he was the, wind, the one to win my lost friend, or heal my blind sister, or save my parents' crumbling marriage. We had hoped he was the one to deliver me from this addiction, or make peace in the world, or give me what I need to get out from this mountain of debt. We had hoped he was the one to do whatever we asked in his name. And I'm asking in his name, I think, and it's not getting done. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel is what we say uh, when we look this way at God, who, so we're told, has the power to do anything. And then we look that way at all the things that just aren't getting done. It's what we say when we look this way at Jesus, who, so we're told, is mighty in word and deed. And then we look that way and we see him crucified on a cross. You guys know the word omnipotence? This word has caused me some turmoil, if I'm being really honest. When I take a good look at the world with all of its darkness, and then I think about God being all-powerful, uh, I, guess, I guess, if I'm honest, what I see as far as what God is doing, or often not doing more like, uh, it just doesn't look very much like what I understand of the word power. Does anybody with me on that? We can be honest. Yes, JJ, thank you. Like, after all, why isn't everyone just saved? Why didn't God stop Chris Taylor from hitting that home run, Cardinals fans? If God has the power over, like, my neurons and the synapses and my brain, why are things like truth and goodness and beauty often just so hard to understand or recognize? Like, why isn't it all clear? Why does it sometimes feel like probably not much has changed in the 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father? Like the world still, I think, kind of goes on in the same chaotic, destructive way that it has been going on. (coughs) And speaking of the ascension, uh, if what God is after is every knee bowing before Jesus and confessing he is Lord, why did Jesus leave it all? after the triumph of the resurrection. Like, why didn't he just stay? Resurrected Jesus walking around. Nobody's going to be able to deny that. Like, maybe for a few years, and they'll be like, I oh, he wasn't really dead. But if he keeps living forever, and it's the year 2021, and Jesus is still hanging out in the Middle East somewhere, we'd be like, yeah, there's something strange about that guy. Hear me. I'm not trying to suggest that God is incapable. And I think we ought to vigilantly hold on to the truth that God is powerful, even all-powerful, that he has 
more power than we could possibly imagine. But I'm also saying maybe he has a different sort of power than what we tend to imagine. Maybe we have the wrong idea about what real power is. So when it comes to, you know, shaping things, to affecting change in people or in events or in the world, you know, power, I believe that there are basically two kinds. The one is the kind uh, of power that a hammer has over a nail. It drives with force, and the nail has no choice but to be driven. We can call this right-handed power. Right-handed power, we know it so well. It's the power that our military has over our enemies when the tanks start firing. That's right-handed power. It's the power that tired and desperate parents have over their children when they just can't take anymore and they're taking away their privileges or they're putting them in timeout or they're spanking them or they're yelling at them. Right-handed power is the power that uh, us insecure and manipulative boyfriends and girlfriends have over our partners when we start wielding our moods like a weapon. <coughs> At times, right-handed power is relatively harmless, like timeout, uh, but it also escalates. And if you think about it, like the only answer to right-handed power not being listened to is just to keep ratcheting it up until it becomes something really devastating like an atomic weapon. Whatever the scale, though, it effectively works by the same principle. Here's what right-handed power is about. It wants to be guaranteed of getting its way by controlling with some kind of force. That force can be an insult, or it can be a threat, or it can be a speeding ticket, or it can be a bullet. Rewards are the same way, by the way. It can be a Nintendo for getting straight A's. Whatever it is, you've got a will. You need your will to be done by somebody else, but they're not like intrinsically motivated to do your will. And so you use whatever you've got on hand to extrinsically uh, get their hiney into gear. And, and here's the thing about right-handed power. It works, right? We've got a very long history with this kind of power and whatever else we can say about it, we can say that it gets results. It may not get genuine transformation, but, or, and, it may bend and break some nails in the process, if you hear what I'm saying, but it does get compliance. And when it's 9.30 and bedtime has been going on for an hour and a half, that'll do. I'll break that nail if I have to. In fact, I think right-handed power is so pervasive and dominant in our imaginations that, like, we can hardly imagine any other kind of power. Some of you might be sitting there and being like, well, yeah, but how else would you get what you want if not by a consequence or a reward? How else would you do it? And, and this notion is so ingrained in us, and it goes all the way to the very top of life, to our thoughts about God himself, <clears throat> such that we think that God is basically just a big right-handed influencer in the sky. Just tell me your will. Just make them see your truth. Just give me a sign. Just save the world, for God's sake. In other words, if God's got the omnipotence to do it, why not just do it? But this is a half-sided view of power, and <clears throat> it doesn't leave room for God to be powerful in any other way except then as a power or as a hammer pounding a nail. And, and we think, man, if, if only God would just... 
could just swing his big omnipotent right-handed hammer, then everything would be fine. But as we've said already, everything is clearly not fine. And so here's the end result. Here's where I'm left with. This is why I say it's turmoil. When I'm confronted with these big, difficult questions, and yet I'm only aware of a right-handed notion of power, that I'm more or less forced to acknowledge that either God is not really in control, or else I just continually, hopefully, insist that he is, fingers crossed behind my back, despite the fact that I don't really believe that. <sighs> Man, doesn't that feel heavy? What if we're asking the wrong question? What if instead of assuming power is this kind, the big hammer kind, and then asking whether or not God can smack something with it, what if we first ask, yeah, but all powerful, but in what way? Wielded to what end? Like maybe we shouldn't ask whether, but how? How does God exert power, ex uh, exercise control, or affect change or shape things? Because I believe there is a different kind, and we can, it, it, it's what Martin Luther called the power of the left hand. It's a left-handed power. It's indirect versus direct. Uh, another teacher calls it smell power. So rather than working in the way that a hammer drives a nail, this power works the way that like when fresh bread comes right out of the oven, it, it brings you to the kitchen. It doesn't have to make you come to the kitchen, right? You're inwardly drawn, you're compelled. And I mean, we, when we bake bread, and we bake bread a, a lot, bake, we bake and break bread. When we bake bread at our house, it's like you have to account for a whole extra loaf or two that are just going to get eaten as soon as it comes out of the oven. And then you've got to have your store for what's going to be eaten later. This power, it doesn't have to coerce. It doesn't have to threaten. It's a power that comes just from like revealing. If there is intrinsic goodness in a thing, it just it reveals it. It doesn't have to force it down someone's throat. No one has to make you come to the table to eat the bread under a threat of con consequence, right? Like, if you don't get here, then you're going to get a timeout. Well, if you don't get here, you miss out on the bread, and nobody wants to miss out on the bread. Sorry, gluten-free people. I'm sure there's something else for you, too, but talking about bread. So in the real world, this kind of power, it, it works by modeling, or we could even say incarnating, eh? It, rather than commanding. It works by solidarity rather than superiority. It works by radiating goodness rather than trying to like win a debate about what is good. Um, it can admittedly be very difficult to know how to wield, right? Like you pick up a hammer, it's pretty self-evident what you're supposed to do with it. It's not very self-evident how to create an aroma. You know what I'm saying? And here's the trick about left-handed power. Uh, it's not necessarily the most efficient thing for getting results. It does not make anything unmistakably clear. It leaves itself totally open to rejection. Uh, it is, as uh, an author I like, his name is Robert Capon, he says, it's, it's guaranteed to stop no determined evildoers whatsoever. Guaranteed to stop no evildoers whatsoever. It does not control anything and so leaves the outcome seemingly uncertain. In other words, it seems like no power at all. It's no wonder then that our disciples on the road, Cleopas and the disciple without a name, they're standing there on that road and they're still and they're sad, mourning the death of Jesus and along with him, mourning the hope that anything could be redeemed. Right? Because without a Messiah of power, right-handed power, how can anything change? 
the Jesus that the disciples aren't recognizing, like the one that's with them on the road, they don't know who he is, he seems like a tourist in their life, right? Just kind of in and out. And the Jesus that they thought they knew when they're talking to unrecognized Jesus about the Jesus they thought they knew when he was alive, they said he was a, a man and a prophet. But notice the one thing that he isn't to them here. The one thing he doesn't, they don't call him is the Christ. Because I wonder, maybe they don't understand that the essence of the Christ is to live truly in this sort of power all the way to his death. Like they see his death as a demonstration of weakness and failure, when in reality it's like the pinnacle of power. Like think about our benediction verse that we've been saying every semester or every service all semester long, right? And you've got a lamb standing in the center of the throne room, the epicenter of power, and his main characteristic is he's had his throat slit. Like he's standing there as if he has been slain. The lamb's slainness is a large part of what puts him at the center of the throne room. This is a motif that runs throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. So Jesus says, resurrected Jesus, unrecognized Jesus. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, then enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? He says, oh, foolish ones. I think he's still got the twinkle in his eye, by the way. I think he's being gentle there. I don't think he's scolding them. But he speaks here every bit as much to us as he speaks to the two disciples. All of us who are understandably disappointed at what's not getting fixed. All of us who understandably don't understand what the paradoxical power of God in Christ is. We don't understand that it's this, this power is not to make himself great in the way that we think of greatness, but rather to empty himself, to be born in the unlikely likeness of us who were sinners, to become the lowest of us, and to live serving as the lowest of us, to save dying as the lowest of us. Crucifixions were reserved for terrorists, folks. That's, that's, what they were, that's who they were for. Terrorists and slaves. Those are the people that got crucified. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, that mind, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he died as a terrorist and a slave, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why this way? Why this crucified, powerless way, if it's so inefficient at getting results? Why the utter rejection of the cross itself that can so easily go on being utterly rejected for just generations to come? There it still stands, and you can walk away from it if you want to. 
Why? As Robert Capon also wrote, well, the first answer is, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. God's reasons are even more hidden than his methods. But I have seen enough of the results of direct intervention, right-handed power, to make me rather glad that he seems, for whatever reason, to have lost interest in it. What he means is this. This left-handed, indirect power, our smell power, our bread power, it's the only kind of power that can actually affect real change in a person without destroying their personhood. Right-handed power, it might get the results that we want, but it also gets ones that we don't intend. Anyone who has parents who didn't know when to let off of the right-handed hammer, they know that when we follow this to its logical end, what this power does in the end is it, it just ends with destruction, destruction and dehumanization and just separation without any real transformation. With hammer power, nothing like partnership or transformation or relationship actually happens. But as you've been told since you were knee-high to a grasshopper if you've grown up in church, relationship is precisely what God wants with us. To be rightly related to God is what is most deeply true. It's what he wants most for the world. And yet right-handed hammer power can't get that. And so what I think all of this reveals is, is that what we're most used to thinking of as power, with our tanks and our chariots and our curses and our consequences, that's actually nothing of the sort. It's not power. It's all shenanigans. Gets results, but it's just totally out of sync with what is real. And by that I mean with what God wants for the world. And so the way that I see it, the cross turns out to be the epitome of power. What appears to be utter weakness, the emptying, servant, weak life and death of Jesus, it turns out to be the only power that is real. It's the kind that invites you, that makes a way for you, that gives itself to you, that dies for you, and always loves you whether you accept it or submit to it or not. And it's power because when you do decide to respond to it, when you are allured, and I don't even know if deciding is what you can actually call it, right? When the power, when the smell gets to you, like are you just deciding to go and get the bread as if there's an option not to? Like if it's that good, you don't really have a choice not to. The problem is just maybe you haven't been smelling it, right? But when you do respond to it, you are wholly changed by it. And if you don't, cross is still standing there. Bread's still coming out of the oven. Keeps presenting itself to you, waiting for you to catch the scent and come to the table and be fed by that which will make you never hunger again. And so I think what I'm seeing is that God's humble, self-sacrificing power in Jesus is not about forcing us to eat or else. Really what this power is about, it's like, it's like we've got a giant sinus infection and it's removing the blockage so that we can actually smell the bread. And once you smell it, man, you're at the table. Certainly this means something for the way that we think of God being in control or doing his will or changing the world, right? Like, let us remember that it's, it's not just that Jesus is God-like, but God is also Jesus-like. And so how can we read Philippians 2 
that Jesus gave up equality with God, the giant right-handed Thor power hammer, laid it aside, and he humbled himself, and he served and died. How can we read that? And then read that this is precisely what led to his name being exalted above every other name, to every knee bowing before him. And then how can we still sit around waiting for God to act like a superhero and just swing a big divine hammer from the sky to make his will be done? Doesn't mean we can't be disappointed when things go terribly. I think it changes what we expect from God or how we expect, where we expect to find God working. Because what this notion of this smell power does to us, it does something to us. Besides just bring us to the table. It turns us from distant onlookers, right? We're just praying for a Hail Mary from the sidelines. It turns us into, it turns us into the scent. Like we become the scent. We are implicated. So, When we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, uh, we mean that or we ought to mean that as much as a kick to our own butts as we do as a plea for God to do something. God's will be done on earth. By whom? By us. We become a big part of the way that God wants to shape the world. This power uh, doesn't just work on us, it works through us. Man, drowning you in scripture this morning. I got one more. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Just remember, this kind of triumphal, not like giant tank bomb procession. Triumph. He always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That loaf comes out of the oven. If we are living faithfully in the way of Jesus, as he told us, we become the aroma. We are the thing that's drawing people to the table. Are you with me? I guess God really is committed to building that kingdom Uh, Not with a hammer, but with a loaf of bread. This great mystery is that the amazing grace becomes an entrusted responsibility. The aroma of Christ is like rubbed off on us down through these centuries from all of those. And if you look backwards and the procession that came before you, before us, and they surround us. And we now carry it on so that somebody else can catch a whiff. At the end of the, Dema- of the Emmaus story, the two disciples convince a still unrecognized Jesus to stay with them for dinner. The gospel says that Jesus explained all the things in scripture concerning himself, and apparently they were just so riveted by that that they had to have more. And it's only once they finally sit down, they sit down at the table, and Jesus, do you remember the story? What does he do? He breaks the bread. He breaks the bread, and suddenly the light bulb goes off, and they realize who they're with. Why here? Why at the breaking of the bread do they finally see him? Maybe it's because the Last Supper just happened a few nights ago, and they're just remembering that. But maybe it's got something not just to do with the bread, but the brokenness 
of the bread. His body, the bread, had to be broken. It had been broken. And the power is in the brokenness. And I think once they and we learn to identify Jesus, not as a God-man superhero, but as the crucified Christ, when we begin to see that that is his mark in the world, then I hope that we will see him more readily everywhere around us and also become more ready to live in the way that he has set for us. As the apostles said, carrying his death around in our bodies all day long. And suddenly, just at the moment that they recognize him, then you know what happens? Poof. He vanishes from their sight, just as he so often does from ours. We have a moment of clarity, and poof, he's gone. Another classic left-handed move, by the way. Notice what they say just as soon as he's gone. They don't say, what? Crap! Ah! Come back! Man, I wish he'd come back! Come back! Explain more things. No. What they immediately say is, didn't our hearts burn within us? That is the left-handed power of the crucified Christ. Because whose heart ever burned within them after being on the other end of someone's right-handed power? Once Jesus had these two disciples in that way, through helping them understand the power of his suffering and dying on behalf of others, even for his worst enemies. Once he had them there, he had them forever, all the way down to the core. And so now, uh, may he have us all the way down as well. And may our eyes be opened to him in the breaking of bread, in the brokenness of his body given for us. May our hearts burn within us. May every tribe and every knee come to bow before him, not because he swung his hammer, but because he didn't. And may we learn to live joyfully as the aroma of Christ, carrying this stoppable, unstoppable power with us as we follow in his way.